one is constantly caught in this in this uh, trying just to make decisions, choose this over that. So there's a, that's why it's you know lay life is much more has more distractions and more um, you know pulls outward everything and modern life now is to draw us outward to to spend money to make money and spend it for the economy for the free market you should never be content with what you have because you should because you always can improve and so advertising is all about trying to convince you you need something better than what you have So recognizing this, that, that it's not a complaint, but just uh, or a grumbling about it, but just recognizing uh, the the society we live in is like this, and uh, there's so many options, alternatives uh, now in in a wealthy country like this one. This this must be uh, quite a quite a experience going to a supermarket and just deciding what salad dressing you want or what soap powder. I remember, you know, all these kind of shopping centers and and that developed while I was uh, locked away in the monastery. I became a monk in 1966. So um, then when I when I came to live here in in the UK, you know, I stayed pretty much in monasteries. And one day, somebody took me to a shopping center in uh, in um, Watford, called the Harlequin Shopping Center, <laughs> and I was just curious to see what it was like. I'd never been in one really, so the. He took me in, and, and it was, you know, dazzling, the lights and the displays and the, uh, all the, th- the things, and, you know, there for to look at. And, and I felt, really, I felt overwhelmed by it. I wasn't used to, to, to such, uh, such impingement, all it kind of all coming at me at once. I'm not particularly, you know, country bumpkin, but... But I was just thinking how strongly that just uh, a few minutes in that shopping center I wanted to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Rows upon rows, uh, marvelous things for sale, and then then coffee shops and sweets and restaurants and everything, you know, all in this uh, remarkable place. And it's probably not one, of, it's probably kind of an ordinary shopping center. We've got, you know, vast ones I hear in the United States, some that are just enormous. <coughs> so it does, you know, notice how things do affect us. When, when we have too many things come, come at us all at once, 
Uh, and of course, you know, if you've been living here for, you know, monastic life in monasteries for years, and then, then you go into the, into these uh, fantastic shopping centers. Uh, it is. It's it's overwhelming because your senses are all very much used to the more subdued life, monastic life, as we experience it here. But awareness allows us to witness the way it is. It's not, you know, it's not a matter of of uh, making value judgments like condemning the world or shopping centers or whatever or free market capitalism. It's not up to me to to pass judgment and get obsessed with that, but to recognize how things do affect me. Because this I can actually do. You know, this, this uh, body-mind sitting here, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body itself, and the, the, the thing, the way the sense world impinges upon it. This can be observed. So this is like mindfulness is is uh, putting oneself in that center point, that still point in the center that embraces everything else, where we're, we're not just caught in just reacting to things, you know, trying to resist or get hold of or just uh, be overwhelmed heedlessly. We can be overwhelmed mindfully means that we feel overwhelmed, but there's awareness of the feeling. With mental confusion, you know, I, I remember uh, never liking to feel confused. I, li- I like to always have like the idea that I should be very clear in my mind. And uh, when when I became emotionally confused, I found that very distressing, and tried to suppress the confusion, get away from it, trying to to make my life so that I feel, you know, that that I don't have that feeling of confusion. So it's either right or wrong, good or bad. It, what should or shouldn't be. You want to have opinions and views, certainty in your life makes you feel confident and safe. But confusion is part of the human reality, isn't it? When when so many things impinge on us at once, how can it not be otherwise but confused? You know, when so many things happen to us all at once. So, the simplicity Life, modern life, seems to me incredibly complex, complicated, and and in meditation is moving out of complexity, not 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 uh, suppressing it, but just by recognizing, realizing the the reality of awareness puts us in the very in that simple position of witnessing 
And so the confusion and complexity we might experience uh, due to changing circumstances is can be observed. It's like this. Feeling insecure, confused is like this. And that was quite an insight for me. I remember when I had it, the feeling it's so so obvious in its own way, but then I realized that <coughs> my personality was one that that felt confu- confusion was uh, wrong. I shouldn't be confused. I don't like the feeling of being confused, overwhelmed by anything. I like I like to have everything kind of nicely laid out and have things come one at a time. You know, everything come come at me all at once. Uh, this is uh, this is very difficult. So people start ask speaking to me all at once. Uh, confusion. They first you, and then you <laughs> have some control over the situation. <coughs> when you start thinking about the world. You know, uh, Bernard Jones, who who we've been chanting for, who died uh, last week, he was like uh, Kun Pang, uh, his, it was his uh, friend, and, he, and Pang said, Bernard was one who really worried about the world. <coughs> and I remember Bernard used to write me letters, quite long letters, you know, about his concern for or the, the political s- problems of this country, or the starvation in Africa, or the Israeli-Palestinian problem, or Church of England, or anything. You know, there's, such, there's so many problems. Uh, and in this kind of, you know, that one, once you grasp these, these, uh, these worldly conditions, then the, it pulls you into this intensity of feeling and distress and concern. <laughs> and I don't think Bang was able to teach Bernard meditation. <laughs> there was, you know, this, this, uh, this was very, being, you know, Bernard was one of these very kind of very nice kind of gentleman who who especially felt for the underdogs for the poor for the unfortunate so this is you know these are good qualities but yet uh, it's a it's a hopeless problem isn't it if if one's life is just caught in the in the in these worldly concerns because there's no end to them Fifty years ago, I remember we were supposed to, uh, by this time, have solved all the problems. We were so naive and optimistic back in the 1950s. And we thought, I remember, medical science would have a cure for every ailment. We'd already conquered TB. We had antibiotics to cure pneumonia. Before, when I was a child, when you caught pneumonia, it was very serious. 
of children died often from pneumonia before the antibiotics came into existence. And then uh, TB was, was no more a problem. And then uh, smallpox, measles, the whole lot, everything was, we're finding vaccinations and, and uh, medical cures or preventatives for everything. And cancer was definitely going to, to be cured. By this time, it should have, they should have found a cure for all cancer, or completely annihilated cancer from the planet. And now, you know, 50 years later, there's more diseases now than we ever had back in the 1950s or that we knew about. There was no HIV AIDS, 1950. Plus all the allergies and the and all kinds of ailments that uh, didn't seem to be to exist, uh, that or that I recall ever being mentioned or problem. So <coughs> this uh, idea that that if we get you know if we straighten out the world, modern science, medical science, modern technology democratic government, uh, all the rest will be able will be able to live on this planet, extend the lifespan uh, and uh, we can improve the species maybe, designer babies. We could we could manipulate the the genes and so forth to get, you know, so that every baby that is born will be perfect. So this is kind of perfect, you know, the best of, of humanity. These are the, the, the kind of fantastic fantasies of faith in modern science and progress. <coughs> that was very much um, the dominant attitude 50 years ago in the United States. <coughs> And so now we in, we find that you know that the the world, no matter how much we improve, as it certainly standard of living is much higher now than it was then. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, when this the the people can you know most people can afford to buy cars and and uh, refrigerators and televisions and laptops and everything you know these are not just the the property of the wealthy <coughs> and i remember a few years ago i was in calcutta and uh and it was a very crowded city and 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 this was they've kind of cleaned it up a bit but this was maybe 15 years ago and and they used to have terrible pollution in Calcutta. So when it started da- getting dusk, you look out on the streets and all this kind of, this kind of yellow, kind of like the color of the robe, this kind of <laughs> pollution would be hanging around in the streets. And but yet in those days, uh, in India, they didn't have, they didn't import automobiles, so they just had these ambassador sedans and and a few taxis. And still, there were traffic jams, and 
and traffic problems in Calcutta. So I was with a friend of mine, Indian friend who lives in Calcutta, and and um, and I said, won't it be wonderful in the future when everybody in Calcutta has their own private car? And then, imagine that, all these millions of people trying to move their cars to the streets of Calcutta. You know, you couldn't move, you know, just get stuck. <coughs> so I, the idea of having your own car and, and all the, these, these hopes and expectations, ambitions of, of human individuals for progress and and improving, life-saving, life, uh, time-saving technology. And now people talk about being stressed out all the time. They've got all these time-saving machines to live with. <coughs> then about 12 years ago, I went to, uh, I, I went to a conference, World Fellowship of Buddhist conference in South Korea, and and uh, they and uh, the the bhikkhuni that used to be with us, Virojana, she uh, took me to see her monastery, which was out in the in the mountains. This beautiful Umungsa uh, convent, for only it's only for uh, nuns, Korean nuns. And uh, it's a very ancient place and in a very beautiful setting. And uh, the, mo the neatest, cleanest, most well-ordered monastery I've ever seen anywhere in the world. The, 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 the level of impeccability is, I've never seen it reach the standard that, it, that I saw at Umungsa. <coughs> and... Uh, they had about 250 bhikkhunis, and uh, they were, there was more of a, like a training monastery, a study monastery for newly ordained nuns, and they wore these little white um, kind of uh, slippers, and uh, and, you'd w and you'd be walking through this this complex of beautiful buildings, and there'd be the rows of these white slippers, perfect. Or alignment. You know, not one was out this far. They were all perfect, you know, even like this in rows, 250 pairs of white plastic slippers. That's how they train nuns in Korea. <laughs> and uh, the and I was very impressed by the then the uh, Bikuni Virojana took me to where they washed their robe and they washed them in the river. They didn't even have washing machines or anything. They, the Bikunis all had to go out, wade into the cold water of the river, it's really cold, and uh, wash, the all the, do all their laundry there. And uh, then they, then but their their robes are impeccable. You know, they starch them, and they are very stiff, and they, they there's not they don't made me feel I was really sloppy. Felt really sloppy there. The Theravada robes. 
<laughs> like an old tramp walked in. Everything just perfect, you know, just beautifully aligned, beautifully maintained in every way. <coughs> and yet their life was very simple, you know, they, they, they didn't seem to have uh, take to modern technology very quickly. And so the life there seemed quite simple and well run. The the, the abbotess, the head bhikkhuni, was uh, couldn't speak English, so it was hard to you know communicate with her. But she was very impressive, uh, just her presence, and she seemed to woman about 50 years old. She wasn't that old, and uh, she uh, seemed um, you know quite had a kind of balance of discipline, strictness, and compassion. So the place had a good atmosphere. It wasn't even with all that neatness, cleanliness, order. Sometimes that could be oppressive, you know, if you've got a tyrannical mother superior that browbeats you into order, then then you create an atmosphere, a very negative atmosphere. But this had seemed to everybody seemed quite joyful and happy there. <coughs> So that really impressed me to see, you know, a kind of strictness, sternness, discipline, but it wasn't oppressive, wasn't tyrannical. And life was, was quite simple there. And uh, Bhikkhuni Vairochana said that most of the nuns, Bhikkhunis in Korea, say the best years of their lives are when they were studying at Umungsa. Then they have to leave. They can only stay there so long. They, it's like a college or something <coughs> for training. <coughs> I found the same when I went to Watbot Pong. You know, in the, uh, in the when I first ordained as a bhikkhu. You know, it was very simple. It was in those days there was no no luxury. It was all very basic. Primitive, primitive uh, lifestyle, but very simple. And I found that you know just that simplicity of of just uh, living in that way was was quite pleasant. You know, I'm being brought up in the in the kind of middle class attitude of you know if I don't have electricity, what will I do? If I don't, you know, we need this, we need that, and going to a, to a place where life is so primitive I wouldn't be able to stand it but I actually found I quite liked it wasn't wasn't miserable it wasn't painful so I'm reflecting on this just how the simplicity of life is uh, is uh, you know something that that can be easily lost because the society now is so complicated everywhere, not just here, but everywhere. And there's so many problems and so many, there's so much poverty and, and corruption and, and uh, enormous population, world population and 
and all kinds of and terrorism and so forth that the it seems like the problems of the world just seem to get more and more and the wealthier you get then the more complicated you become because your 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 what you expect your expectations go up and your standard of living progress all these are part of the the um, aspiration for progress making things better all the time so this has an effect on on our conscious experience you know the infinite choices varieties options possibilities when life is narrowed down more to just something very simple and we we learn to uh, you know we adjust to that and that makes the kind of material side the worldly side much more easy just like a meditation retreat 10-day retreat here just having the retreat center managers organize everything and the cooks and the the food is purchased and and you just eat what they cook and uh, you you take the bed that you're assigned to and you follow the schedule and uh, and then the meditation is watching the breath inhalation makes it quite easy isn't it very simple and and uh, mindfulness then being aware isn't complicated you know it's not complex fantastic kind of attainment but then we begin to notice how complicated we can make a meditation retreat because we sit there and we don't have to worry about the cooking the meal or this or that but then all the unresolved feelings problems uh, emotional habits start rising up into consciousness they're thinking oh I'm going to Amravati 10 day retreat just to get away from the from the rat race of London come into the Chiltern Hills and sit there and find peace commune with nature and you're sitting there and then the mind produces all kinds of worries and fears and problems and one finds you know one's getting irritated by the person sitting next to you or <coughs> and remember you know the, the the battles that go on about the ventilation of the Dhamma of the uh, meditation hall, the retreats. <laughs> I used to watch one one retreat I was giving it. Somebody come and open all the windows, and then the rest would come, and then somebody close all the windows, <laughs> and then somebody get very upset and open some of them, and then another one get close them, and then out <laughs> of the fresh air. Uh, those who want fresh air and those who want warmth <coughs> and these can be you know bring up you know feelings of 
murder sometimes, isn't it? You know, you know, just something like that. Somebody opens the window and, and the cold air is blowing in on you. And you, you just, one can feel incredible desire to m murder that person. <coughs> so the, but the aim of the meditation is not to, to have the perfect uh, meditation hall and uh, where you know, the temperature is perfect, and even though that, that's nice if you can have it, but, or where, you know, everything is, everybody is the way you want them to be. Everything it fits your ideal of, of uh, you know, what you want so you can really meditate. And you'll probably never find such a place. So the, the aim of awareness isn't to, to try to perfect the external world, but to learn from it. You know, from the way it is. So like on a meditation retreat, one is trying to, to make it as simple as possible, as, you know, within the possibilities that we have here. <coughs> In terms of making it so that you don't have a lot of, you know, you're not you're encouraged not to go out or to talk and chat, spend the time socializing. Uh, it's, you know, the aim is for looking inward so that you're in a hall, maybe a, the, the meditation hall with maybe 40, 50 people there. And, but it's not to socialize and chit-chat, but to you know, support each other in, the, in this endeavor of awareness. Meditation, bhavana. So then, the only thing that we're really called upon to do is to be aware, bring attention to this present moment. Simple, isn't it? Mindfulness is the ultimate simplicity. There's nothing more simple than that. Jhanas are not so simple. <coughs> but mindfulness is. So, so the, this is, this is where it's, you know, what I've been on this, in the morning reflections and things like that, it's just reflecting over and over what, you know, awareness is the way, is the path. You know, it's, uh, and to recognize it, to, to, to spot it, to notice, and that's through paying attention. Right now, you know, and observing, not, not controlling, not trying to to uh, make your mind the way you'd like it to be, <coughs> or not try to practice in order to achieve some some state that you you've read about, or some uh, or renew some experience you've had before. But if that's what you're doing, to be able to see that you know the the way that 
you know, we, we can approach meditation from the idea of progress and uh, trying to get this, get something we don't have, or get rid of what we have that we don't want. So this awareness of this witnessing, the puto, the knowing of this is this is the way it is. This desire to get something is like this desire to get rid of something is like this. Confusion is is like this. Uh, feeling wanting to murder the person that opened the window is like this. And it, it, there's no judgment in it. It's not, not saying, you took the precepts, bhāna-dibhāta, you not intentionally murder anyone. But then you can feel guilty about feeling the desire. I mean, a good, good Buddhist would not even have that thought. But sometimes these thoughts do arise. And... And in the conditions there, we're being totally frustrated or you know, people are being insensitive or, or doing it deliberately. We can even be paranoid saying, he's doing that deliberately to torture me. I know it. I've heard meditators say that. You know, build up a whole scenario about somebody who's there who come on the retreat only to make their life miserable. That's paranoia, isn't it? <coughs> but yet sometimes it feels like that. So, you know, whether you want to call it paranoia or what, but the, the, the important thing is to be aware that this is what it is. So when I, when I just notice confusion is like this, like in, with Jitanupasana, <coughs> the insight into states of mind, this, this sense of confusion, discontentment, uh, dis-ease, just vague uh, kind of negative emotions, uh, anxiety, um, worry, uh, restlessness, these uh, this dullness or sleepiness, that these can be seen from this puto position just by bringing it into consciousness, noticing it's like this, feeling dull, feeling uh, despair or depressed or whatever is, is what it is. It's like this. And in that way, then, we're allowing a condition that has arisen to cease. We're not getting rid of it. We're not destroying, annihilating anything. We're, we're allowing the natural flow without me interfering with it because I, I don't like what's happening or I want something else. So, in awareness, this is awareness and consciousness. When we're 
when we're mindful, purely present, then consciousness is 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 still functioning. But it's also acting like a mirror for awareness. Because the consciousness then things arise uh, accordingly to conditions, the uh, happiness, unhappiness, hope, fear, anxiety, confusion. And the awareness is then not judging the, the condition, not trying to, not reacting to it, but letting it be in consciousness, so it arises and ceases. <clears throat> so this is to notice, to be, to be that aware where your awareness, mindfulness connects, is a flow, is not just fragmentary or m- momentary, or just flashes of awareness, but where you actually recognize awareness to the point that you can sustain awareness or it sustains itself once you recognize it. You don't have to make it. You don't have to sustain it personally, but just recognizing this is awareness unattached to anything. And then the conditions uh, will will come and go. And you you reflect on, you know, you when, when they're arising, when they're ceasing, the flow and movement of mental conditions, emotions, thoughts, memories. Now consciousness is a in, you know, usually is identified in with the five as the fifth khanda. So, in, in in the Pali canon, of course, vinyana is used in different contexts. So it you know this is in the five khandas. It's it's about the attachment to the five khandas is the cause of suffering. So when consciousness is is uh, the natural vehicle that we're experiencing, this is a conscious realm. Consciousness is is the result of being born, a conscious form. So we're experiencing consciousness from this form, and then we th- then in, we get confused because we think. Uh, of consciousness is limited to to this form and uh, and we you know then we we uh, when we try to be mindful and we wonder what is it that's aware then of consciousness is awareness consciousness or can you be aware of mindfulness or so in in this respect, you know, this this is not putting consciousness as an object, but recognizing mindfulness brings us into the reality of consciousness, which is not attached to anything. 
we're not, you know, caught in in uh, desire, uh, trying to control, trying to get, trying to get rid of. Where we're no longer caught in the illusion of a self, which which we interpret experience always from this is happening to me and what I think and feel about this, approve and disapprove. And awareness is not, you know, is is not a creation, a personal creation. It's it's a it's a, the natural state of things. It's dhamma. It is the the gate to the deathless. It is the the way that within this complexity of of the five khandhas and the six ayatanas and all the mental proliferations, habits and karma of how many previous lives, uh, who knows what, the complexities of, of these fascinating individuals, you know, just endless uh, permutations and convolutions of conditioned phenomena rolling on. How can one not be caught in all that complexity. Self is a complicated thing, isn't it? <clears throat> the ego is a is complicated. Me as a person, that then it gets into complications. I'm a complicated, complex personality. <clears throat> and so on that level, you know, I have I have a lot of memories, lived 70 years, so I remember a lot. I don't have Alzheimer's yet. And uh, <laughs> I'm waiting there. <laughs> Every time I can't remember something, oh, here it comes. <laughs> and then the, the, uh, you know what I like, my tastes, my preferences, my prejudices, my aversions, and and my views and opinions. This makes me into a very complicated person. So when I experience life through my personality, then I suffer a lot. Suffering is me, definitely. Dukkha is me, because. It's, uh, that's the way the, the self operates. It's so fragile, so easily offended, so upset. We can't get my own way. When, when uh, things aren't going the way I want, when I have to be in situations I don't like, when I have to perform duties I don't want to do, uh, and even when I'm doing what I want to do, then there's a worry that I'm not doing it well enough or that somebody else could do it better or that I'm going to be blamed for something. How many of us live our, live our lives with the fear of being blamed? Because we're blaming society, aren't we? we think, first something happens, we say, who's to blame? We want to blame somebody. And you hear it in, in the in the modern politics, isn't it? It's trying to, who's to blame for the Iraqi mess? And all that? Who's, who can we put the blame on? <clears throat> and so the, the society is one to, to uh, praise and blame. 
critical society. Uh, it's, uh, you know, masses of information available. It, everything is, is complicated now. We know too many things. We have too, so much information. And there's so much, so many options for distraction. So many opportunities. So there's a complexity uh, and on this level of, of uh, the society and the personality that one has. These are complicated. So when, before I became aware of the value of mindfulness, then I suffered a lot. Not that life was, was unfair or brutal to me. I just suffered because of the, you know, the problems I would create. Nothing was just what it was. Everything, in everything that I did, thought, said, imagined, was judged in some way, was, would become much more than that. <coughs> There'd always be blaming, either blaming myself, blaming somebody else. There'd be the fear and concern and obsessions that that one creates uh, through experience of life, through the force of habit. So then the opportunity to become monk arose. I was living in in Malaysia at the time and went on a holiday to Thailand and decided that's where I'm going. I'm going to become a monk there. So then this brought me into the, the uh, where I had the, the opportunity to develop awareness. When I first started meditation, before I uh, became a monk, was at one of the temples in Bangkok, and I didn't know, when they talked about mindfulness and I, but I really didn't know what mindfulness was. I thought it was samadhi, really, concentration, because they, they taught very concentrated technique. <coughs> so the, the, this concentration, you know, being mindful means to do everything in this very slow motion. And uh, so that's, that's what you have to do to be mindful, is just move very slowly. And uh, so I tried to develop, you know, the technique only worked when I was at the, in, the, in, the, in the monastery. I was also working, teaching English at, at one of the universities, so I, I couldn't walk that slowly at the university. Then I had to relate, you know, if I'm teaching English, I've got to speak to people and, and uh, you know, relate to so many things. So I thought, it's impossible to be mindful at the university. You can only be mindful at the monastery when you're sitting there with your eyes closed and nobody's bothering me. Because even though, you know, the mindfulness, that's how sati is translated generally in, into English, uh, and, and I thought I understood it, I didn't really know what it meant. And I didn't know the reality of it. <coughs> so, so much of the early practices were developing concentration. I just, you know, I'd be going to, wanting to develop concentration by, you know, closing the eyes, 
being in a controlled situation where there was no demand, no, not much complex impingement on me and where I could, you know, concentrate the mind. And slow movement helps to concentrate. You can get, you know, just through walking very slowly, that, that kind of walking practice where you do just by increments. If you keep doing that, it, it is very constant. You get very concentrated that way. So then, as I started getting more, you know, contemplating the results of this, and, and became more familiar with the teachings of the Buddha in the Theravada, because before that I never really knew much about Theravada, and my experience before was reading about Zen. So then I began to, uh, this mindfulness, you know, how could it be dependent on just doing everything in a, in, you know, in a controlled situation, doing anything in slow motion? Can you be mindful running for the bus? If, if the fire, if the monastery catches on fire, should I walk slowly and mindfully out of the monastery? <laughs> I might, you know, or can you just, you know, run out of the monastery yelling fire and still be mindful? These kind of questions. Because I began to see mindfulness was, uh, you know, the Buddha was teaching a way of living life, of moving, of being conscious that wasn't dependent on conditions being any certain way, being peaceful and tranquil or chaotic and confused. Because he was pointing to the liberation, freedom from suffering, Nibbana, which isn't a state dependent on conditioned phenomena, being any certain way. <coughs> so it became aware that, that if that's, that, that like these concentration practices made me very dependent on to get uh, the tranquility, get the jhanas, one had to uh, control the situation a lot. I couldn't get the jhanas teaching English at Thomas Hart University. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, uh, but could I be mindful while teaching English? So these are the kind of questions I'd ask myself. And, uh, and then through the years, it, you know, the, the begin, when I began to really recognize this is Sati Sampatanya. And this isn't uh, dependent on condition phenomena. It's just paying attention here and now. It's not a created state. I don't make myself mindful. It takes no effort. It's just letting go, really, of opening, observing, being present. And then the, in that state of awareness, you know, it's a natural state uh, that isn't created, so it it sustains itself. It it is what it is. And if one, when you recognize 
awareness, then it's a matter of realizing and recognizing. In the Four Noble Truths teaching, the first two Noble Truths are using suffering, dukkha, but the third Noble Truth is about cessation. That's where you, you know, the insight into the awareness, the, the what arises ceases. So the cessation, you, you know, mental condition, if you, if you trust your awareness, it, whatever you're feeling or thinking, remembering, will cease in consciousness. You're still conscious. And that consciousness then isn't, it's not attached to anything. It's not trying to get rid of it or make, make it into something else or exaggerating or proliferating, but just recognizing. So in the scriptures they talk about consciousness and attachment. Now this is the state of avicca, ignorance, <coughs> of the Four Noble Truths. When we talk about avicca, what that really means in the Pali scripture is ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. It doesn't mean illiteracy or anything. <coughs> When we, when we use the word arahant in Theravada, it means that's the, the having had all twelve insights into the Four Noble Truths. And so, so like there's three aspects to each truth, and there's Four Noble Truths, that's twelve insights. So, so one time I remember down at Chitters years ago, I said, do you know what an arahant knows? Gave a talk one evening. Said, what does an arahant know? And says, it knows suffering. <laughs> arahant knows suffering. Uh, suffering should be understood. Suffering has been understood. Knows the origin of suffering. Should be let go of. Has been let go of. Knows third noble truth. Cessation should be realized, has been realized, knows the fourth noble truth, the path, the eightfold path, should be cultivated, has been cultivated. I mean, so these are, these are you know, just the, just putting these, these words in the context of the, the essence of the essential teaching of Buddhism, the four noble truths. And these words like Nibbana and Arahant, these can be, you know, these words lose their meaning because they get, they become superlatives on a personal level. If you attain Nibbana yet, then are you an Arahant? And things like this, so that the whole thing of a self, you know, my personality you know, is never going to be enlightened. My personality is a habit pattern. And it's like the brick, you know, you can't make a mirror out of it. It's, it's just not meant to be that way. But the awareness, we're not the personality. The personality is a condition. It's conditioning that arises and ceases according to other conditions. You're not the same person, are you? When you're, you know, when you're at your job or you're in the meditation hall or you're with your 
parents or with your best friend or alone. I mean, the personality adjusts itself to the, depending on the conditions present. So the, the awareness then is the, is this flow, allows the flow of consciousness to reflect the conditioned realm. And so then we develop wisdom, panya, from that, from discerning. Consciousness with attachment, consciousness without attachment. So we can be conscious and attached, we can be crazy, mad, uh, drunk, and we're still conscious, but with attachment. <coughs> or consciousness unattached. You know, this is, this is, uh, this is subtle, because the society we live in, everybody is is conscious, except for those that are unconscious. <laughs> and, uh, and, but uh, attached to all kinds of views, opinions, scenarios, hopes, fears, anxieties, worries, duties, ideals, resentments, angry men, angry women, Blaming, resenting, being jealous, scared of death, and so our conscious experience is oh, is is fraught with complexity. And and this and modern life with all its high tech and all its it's a kind of miraculous technology. Not to to put it down, but it does it, it doesn't help in in, uh, you know, encouraging us toward awareness, because that's, we don't need technology for that. We don't need anything, any instrument, any, any uh, aids of any sort other than uh, your own attentiveness, willingness to observe the way it is now. So, from the stress of modern life and the, through the simplicity of awareness, the the deal with stress or complexity is not really a problem if you really uh, recognize awareness and cultivate the awareness. So in the Fourth Noble Truth, the, the insight is to cultivate or develop awareness from samaditi, right understanding. So that Right understanding is is the reality of awareness, and through that, then that's called pawana, translated as developing or cultivating. Mm. 
So the pavana really begins with the Eightfold Path, the developing awareness. So the 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 so the Buddha put this 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 ordinary experience of all human beings suffering as the first noble truth, taking us to through paying attention, examining investigating dukkha, we realize, we recognize the, the way of non-suffering, which is the fourth noble truth. Now as you cultivate this more and more, it's like you just see, like the, the world around is, uh, doesn't change. You know, you still have your karma to live through, your karma ripens, and things happen, so uh, things you like, things you don't like, things go very well, things don't go very well, you feel healthy, you feel sick, and on and on like that. But the awareness is, is uh, you know, if, if I, on a personal level, there's, there can be suffering, when things change the way I don't like. On the level of awareness, there's no suffering because the awareness doesn't create suffering. Uh, ignorance creates the suffering by being caught in the, this is happening to me, it's not fair, I don't like this, it shouldn't be this way, uh, you're to blame, and on and on like that. Then, then that is the suffering. That's the dukkha. If I stop doing that, and trust in the awareness, then you're feeling, you know, but you're, you know, you're open, but your relationship to the, to the reactions to experience is one of awareness and non-attachment rather than attachment. So when people ask me about, uh, you know, when somebody disrobes and uh, say, well, how do you feel, you know, and, you know, it must be terribly difficult for you and and uh, sad. And, and it is, uh, you know, it's, it's sad and it is what it is. But my refuge is in the awareness of that, not in attaching to the sad feeling. One still experiences grief at loss, you know, the, the sense of loss of somebody that dies or leaves. But, but the, the awareness, one isn't indulging in that. One isn't attached to grief as, a, you know, a self anymore. So it's not that, you know, awareness makes you insensitive and not caring, you know. doesn't matter. Let him come, let him go. <laughs> Don't feel a thing, <laughs> but you do. You feel, but the the feel because this is the the nature of feeling. This realm is a feeling realm, but the also it the suffering. You're not the suffering is not wanting this to be like this. Not wanting this feeling. 
not wanting myself to feel like this or not wanting you to to leave and disrobe and things like that then then it becomes the self attached consciousness with attachment now when i see the the recognize the reality of non-attachment it isn't it isn't non you know don't it's not that i don't have any more sense of sadness or loss as as experience but is non-attachment to it So I don't create, this realm is like this, you know, it's a, all that it arises, ceases, what, what uh, is born, dies, old age, sickness, death, grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish. This is the, these are just normal feelings that, that are part of human uh, experience. So Buddhism isn't trying to not feel any of these or to, to to kind of wipe that whole uh, experience out of consciousness, but our relationship to it changes from identity, ignorance, identity, attachment to understanding and wisdom, non-attachment. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening. Thank mm-hmm. you.